We are looking this morning at John chapter 18, so if you have your copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to have that open and to be reading along with me this morning. Always helpful for you to be able to follow along with me as we read God's Word. We have been in a sermon series on the Gospel of John for almost a year. We started June 1st, and we are coming to the end of this gospel, and this is the very beginning of the account of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. In one sense, we can say that the whole of Christ's life was humiliation and suffering because it was. The eternal Son emptying himself and coming in the form of a servant, humbling himself, bearing all the scorn and reproach of men throughout his entire life. Um, He was, as we know, Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is the suffering servant of the Lord. And this is, in a very focused way, we can say, though, the beginning of his official sufferings in our place in order to sacrifice himself for our sins. Now, if you've not been here, we have most recently been in the what theologians call the upper room discourse, which is John 13 through 17. And uh, that is where we find the account of the foot washing of the Lord Jesus and then all the instructions that he gives his disciples before he goes to the cross. And then we found in chapter 17 the priestly prayer of Jesus. And that is that long prayer in which the Lord Jesus is committing himself and his disciples and us to the Heavenly Father. And it's very interesting. You have to listen very carefully to this this morning. But theologians have often pointed out that Jesus' ministry as prophet, priest, and king are set out in the upper room and into this section that we're looking at this morning, that in chapters 13 through 16, Jesus is acting as the prophet of his church. In 17, he's acting as the priest of his church. And here in this section in chapter 18, he is acting in his kingly function as the king of his church. I find that to be very helpful, I hope. That was not lost on you, and that you'll find that helpful this morning as well. And so we're looking this morning at John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 14, John 18, 1 through 14. Now, Jesus, having moved out of the upper room with his disciples, John records these words for us. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Hidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Literally in the Greek, he says, I am. Ego, Amy, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain, their officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever well. I don't know about you, but I have had the very painful experience of being betrayed by a friend in life. If you have not had that experience, I envy you. It is not a fun experience to have someone that you trust, someone that you have cared for, someone that you have poured into perhaps someone that you have supported to turn against you for selfish gain. It is one of the most painful experiences of life. Um, Anyone who has experienced betrayal knows that it's something they wouldn't wish on anyone else when they have experienced that. But one of the things that we can take comfort in is that the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son, experienced the hurt of being betrayed by one of his closest friends. Um, This is perhaps lost on many Christians, but it wasn't a stranger who betrays Jesus. It wasn't even the religious leaders who betrayed Jesus. It wasn't an emperor or a king or a politician, though they hated Jesus and will arrest and try Jesus, It was one of his closest friends. We get a glimpse of this, don't we, in Psalm 69, where the psalmist and Christ speaking through him says, I could have borne it if it was someone else, but you, my companion, my close friend, we we went to the house of God together. And it was an unbearable pain for the Lord Jesus. But in another sense, and I I want us to really focus on this this morning, There was a humiliation. There was a humiliation to Jesus being betrayed by Judas. You see, because everyone that had heard and seen Jesus, everyone who had seen his miracles, everyone who had gathered in the great multitudes to hear him, all of the religious officials that hated him and that opposed him vehemently, everyone who was well aware of the public ministry of Jesus knew that he had chosen 12 disciples, and now one of those 12 was going to sell him out for whatever he could get for financial gain. And what that would have done, both in the eyes of the public and would have been a temptation even to the other disciples, was to think, how can this man be the savior of the world if one of his own 12 sell him out? If he can't even choose 12 that are going to support him, what kind of phony must he be? There was a deep 
humiliation, not just hurt, but a deep humiliation to what Jesus experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I want us to look at three things this morning. I want us to first consider the willing obedience of the Son in the Garden, and then I want us to consider, secondly, the divine authority of the Son, and then finally, the sacrificial compassion of the Son, the obedience of the Son, the authority of the Son, and the compassion of the Son. Now, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he must suffer many things. He has told them that he's going to be taken by lawless hands, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be tried, that he's going to be mocked and beaten and spit upon, that he's going to be crucified. And he's told them on the third day he's going to rise again. He has prepared them for everything that he came to do so that they wouldn't buckle under the weight of everything when it happens to him. And he has spent those intimate moments with the disciples in the upper room, those sweet moments of preparing them for everything that's going to happen to them after he is crucified and risen and ascended. And, and now he is going to enter in finally on that work of redemption that he came to do for his disciples. And it's very interesting and very important that we understand Jesus begins the work of redemption in a garden because man fell in a garden. This is not a coincidental parallel. Jesus begins his sufferings in a garden because Adam fell in a garden and he is the last Adam come to redeem his people. I want to read to you something I've always found very fascinating. Uh, Joel Beakey reflecting on the parallels between the Garden of Eden and Gethsemane, says this. Listen to this. He says, Jesus was bound to restore as a second Adam what we lost in the first Adam. What a contrast it was between those two gardens. Here is Adam in the Garden of Eden and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a reversal of roles between Adam's sin and Jesus' righteousness. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was black. In Eden, Adam and Eve dialogued with a serpent. In Gethsemane, the last Adam prayed to his father. In Eden, Adam and Eve were surrounded with glory, harmony, and beauty, and refused to obey. In Gethsemane, despite being surrounded with bitterness and disharmony and sorrow, the Savior suffered and was obedient unto death. In Eden, Adam was conquered by Satan. In Gethsemane, Christ conquered Satan. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, grace was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ could say, of those you have given me, I have lost none. In Eden, Adam took fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ took the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam's hand reached out to grasp sin. In Gethsemane, Christ volunteered his hand to be bound for sin to pay for it. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ stepped out into the moonlight. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, Christ sought God. In Eden, Adam was guilty and arrested by God in the cool of the day. In Gethsemane, Christ was innocent and arrested in the middle of the night. He is a second Adam. That's why he was silent. It was taking the place of the guilty. Now, I don't want you to miss that. That is not incidental. Because the fall began in a garden, redemption 
begins in a garden. Jesus is coming forward as the last Adam to conquer the evil one, to atone for the sins of his people, to conquer death, and to bring his people to glory. And it's very interesting. There is a willing obedience of the son in the garden. You know, it is Judas who is betraying him. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Judas has schemed and plotted. Satan has entered him. Satan has chosen one of God's premier creatures to betray the son of God. And, and Judas has planned and schemed, and he has gone to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and he has said to them, give me whatever you will give me, and I will secure him for you. And yet Jesus is not being taken against his will. Jesus is willingly going forward. You know, Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when he was betrayed because he knew that Judas knew he often retired there. And he knew that Jesus often found prayerful solace there with his father. And Jesus is coming forward as a warrior, and he is saying, here I am. I am going to lay down my life. Remember back in John 10, Jesus said, I laid down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Jesus is no innocent victim who is preyed upon and overwhelmed. He is coming forward. In fact, one old Scottish writer, Hugh Martin, I'd never thought about this. He said, I like to imagine how shocked Judas would have been by the forwardness of Jesus in the garden. Because Judas had told them to bring an army of soldiers to arrest him as if he was a violent criminal. Remember what I said about in the, in the Old Testament reading, we, whenever people are outraged and, and excessively outraged about the sins of others or about some situation out there, it's oftentimes they're deflecting from their own sin. Judas had the wicked, malicious, evil heart filled with Satan, we're told, but, but he is telling them to come with swords and clubs to arrest him. But Jesus comes forward and Hugh Martin says, I, I can't imagine the shock that Judah, Judas would have had. That here Jesus is coming forward courageously, boldly. The Proverbs say the righteous are bold as a lion. Jesus had come for this moment. Jesus had come to lay down his life for his people at this time and in this moment. And he was going to do it willingly. And he was going to do it in willing obedience to his father. Remember just before this. And John doesn't tell us this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, that Jesus is in the garden and he's wrestling in prayer over the cup that the Father gave him to drink. And, and he says in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And he, he doesn't want to lose that perfect fellowship that he's had with his Father from all eternity. And he knows on the cross when he drinks the cup of God's wrath that he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And uh, it's a sinless prayer because it would have been sinful for him to want the broken fellowship with his father. And remember, he is strengthened by an angel. And then this happens. John doesn't tell us about all of that wrestling that we read about, but now Jesus comes boldly. And, and what's the point of that? God has answered Jesus' prayer. How can Jesus come voluntarily and willingly to, to face 
all of the soldiers who are coming to arrest him and, and bind him and carrying him off to judgment and to suffer for us is because the Father answered that prayer. He gave him strength in his soul. And so Jesus now steps out willingly. And notice, he is the one that takes the first step. Notice verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, I think I mentioned this early on in this sermon series. There are all these double entendres in John's gospel. One thing is said, but there's sort of a deeper spiritual meaning. There, there would be this in this question, whom do you seek? You know, the, the, the one most significant thing that God wants for you and me is that we would seek the Savior, that we would seek Jesus of Nazareth. And here they're not seeking him for the right reasons, and he knows that. They're seeking him to destroy him. And so he says to them, whom are you seeking? No, I think there is one sense in which we are supposed to ask the question this morning as we see Jesus willingly entering on, that, on those sufferings. Are you seeking him? That you would hear that question, whom do you seek? And that you would respond in your soul, in the appropriate way, I am seeking the Savior for the salvation of my soul. Jesus goes forward to them willingly, and he delivers himself up. Um, You know, I think that you see this, don't you, in verse 6, when he says to them, I am, and we'll come back to that in a minute, they fall to the ground. There was some kind of force and power in him making that declaration that knocked them off their feet. And, and that, even that, is to show that no one was coming to take him against his will. No one was coming to drag him to suffering. Jesus was going to lay down his life willingly for the salvation of his people in obedience to his Father. And there is a picture here, don't miss this. Jesus is by doing this, He is obeying and he is meriting righteousness by doing everything that his father had given him to do. He is establishing the righteousness that we get by faith in him. He is the obedient one, the last Adam, in the garden, regaining what was lost, willingly laying down his life for his people. And yet there is more in this passage, I think, that denotes that Jesus is willingly laying down his life because at the end, in verse 10, we're told that Simon, having a sword, went and cut off the servant of the high priest's ear, and, and Jesus stops him, and you know he'll heal him, that last miracle where he heals that servant's ear that Peter cuts off, and, and Jesus tells him to put the sword away because Jesus is not going to be protected by his disciples. He has come for this reason. He has come to lay down his life for sinners, and, and Peter is not going to deliver him. You see, everything about the garden is focused on the willing obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Everything about the garden is focused on him triumphing out from himself for the salvation of his people. Um, I love this. Jonathan Edwards says, 
Jesus delivered himself up. His love to sinners did not fail. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment? Jesus delivered himself up. Uh, There was a great old saying by Octavius Winslow, who delivered Jesus up to die? It wasn't the Jews for envy. It wasn't Pilate for shame. It wasn't Judas for money. But it was God the Father giving his son up for sinners. It was God the Father giving Christ for you. It was Christ giving himself for you. That's what's so important about the garden. Christ is giving himself for you, for your sin. Now think about this. Jesus gets nothing from us by dying for us. He does everything for us. There's nothing in me that makes me valuable or deserving of Jesus dying for me. He is is driven by zeal for his Father's glory, and he wants to bring many sons to glory. Um, This is all for your benefit. He sees what's in the hearts of men. Think about this. In that garden, Jesus saw what was in the hearts of men. He saw what was in Judas's heart. He saw what was in the chief priests and Pharisees' hearts. He saw what was in the soldiers' hearts. After they get knocked to the ground, they get back up and they go forward to arrest them. Even that didn't stop them. It didn't change their hearts. It didn't make them see who he was. You see, he got a glimpse in the garden of what is in the human heart. All the sin, all the depravity. And he still willingly goes forward for the redemption of his people. You know, we often talk about the death and the resurrection of Christ, rightly so. And, and we don't meditate enough on the voluntary willingness of Jesus to be arrested and bound. Think about this. This is the God who gives to all men life and breath in all things. This is the God who is infinite, unchangeable, and eternal. And he is willing to have himself bound as a prisoner Isaiah will sum this up when he says he was numbered with the transgressors. He was treated as if he was a violent criminal. Think about that. Jesus was treated as if he was a violent criminal because of your sin and because of my sin. Um, There's the willing obedience of the Son. Now, that willing obedience is further seen, and I just want us to focus on that last verse in verse 11. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knew what it was going to cost him. There was, if I can put it this way, there was something far worse put before the eyes of the Lord Jesus than Judas or soldiers that are armed coming to take him, or a trial awaiting him, there was a cup that the Father had put in front of him in the garden. And that cup, and I know I've said this, but I want to say it again, that cup is explained in the Old Testament. Listen to this. In Isaiah, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. What was in the cup that Jesus had to drink to the very dregs? It was the cup of God's wrath for sinners who deserve that wrath. You know, one of the things that doesn't help anybody 
is all the churches out there that just want to entertain you and never tell you this. Because by nature, this is the epicenter of why the church exists, is to proclaim the fact that Jesus drank the cup of wrath that you deserve, and he drank it to the full so that there is nothing left in it. On the cross, he drank it to the full so that it would be drained completely. Listen to this. One old hymn writer, I love this. One old hymn writer puts it this way, Death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me, that bitter cup. Love drank it up, now blessings draught for me. That cup of wrath is empty because Christ willingly obeyed and said, I must, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me. Now, by the way, this is a lesson that Simon Peter found so hard. Remember, right after Peter makes that great confession of faith in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells him what's going to happen to him. He's going to be betrayed, mocked, beaten, handed over, crucified. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Here in the garden, Jesus is essentially saying to Peter and to the other of the 11, there is a cup I must drink. This is the reason I've come and I am going forward to drink that cup. And nothing is going to stop me from doing that. Listen, what a confidence builder to your faith. I don't know if there's anything greater than that. How do you know that Jesus will receive you, sinful though you are. When you sin today or tomorrow and your conscience feels guilty because of the wrong that we do, how do I know that Jesus will not quit on me because he drank the cup of God's wrath to the full already for me? He already went willingly to the cross. He already conquered. He already atoned for the sins of his people. He already stood in our place. The very fact that Jesus says, shall I not drink this cup ought to be the greatest comfort to your soul. If he drank it to the full, there is only blessing for you. There's only forgiveness and mercy and grace. Even when we sin, especially sometimes when we've sinned, there is new mercy and new grace because Jesus drank the cup willingly in obedience to his father. I hope that you'll find that a comfort. I know I'm going very long on this first point, and the other two are going to be really lopsided, but I want you to find great comfort this morning in this fact. The next time you think you have outsinned the grace of God, remember, he has drank the cup of God's wrath to the full. You cannot incur that wrath if you are savingly united to him. And when we realize that he drank that cup, we want to be like him, and we want to be with him, and we want to obey him, and we want to do those things that are pleasing to him. Um, I hope that that will be a blessing to you. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draw it for me. Secondly, I want us to consider the divine authority of the Son. I noted at the outset of this sermon that that here Jesus is coming forward as the king. He's coming forward in all his kingly authority. He confronts his captors. He says to them, whom are you seeking? 
He is, he is not cowering and hiding. He is not fearful and trembling. He is coming forward as the king of kings. He is coming to make war against Satan, sin, and death. He is coming in all of his divine authority. And when he comes and he says, whom are you seeking? He is essentially saying, you will say my name. You will know who I am. You will know that I am Jesus of Nazareth, the Redeemer. And when they they say to him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am. Now, He's going to say this three times. John is going to repeat it three times. And what's interesting about this is that there are seven other times Jesus says, I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of those parable statements, seven of them. And now in the garden, he simply says, I am. And that is the divine name of Yahweh. That is God's divine name that he revealed to Moses. And now Jesus just simply says, I am. And the Greek construct actually emphasizes that. It's a very unique construct that Jesus is not simply saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. He is saying, I am. I am God. He is expressing divine authority. And we know that because when he says it the first time, they all fall to the ground. Um, A lot of old writers, when they meditate on this, they highlight the fact that on Judgment Day, that same word is going to carry a power far worse than this. With a word, Jesus causes them to fall back. The authority of who he is, the power. This is the king who has all power. And he is expressing that divine authority Throughout this, notice he is also doing it in verse 9. Notice this. He says in verse 8, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those you gave me. I've lost none. He is thinking about protecting his disciples in the garden. You know, when I experienced the hardship I did many, many years ago, the betrayal and the pain of betrayal, I wasn't thinking about how I can bless and help other people. I was thinking how much this hurts. Jesus is standing as the king, thinking about his disciples in his hour of greatest humiliation because he came to protect his people. He came to redeem his people. Not one of those you have given me is lost except the son of perdition. And there is a word there for us. Just like when we hear him talking about drinking the cup, when we see him in his kingly acts in the garden, we ought to be greatly comforted that he will not let us go. And we love the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. We sing it a lot now. The church around the world sings that hymn. It's one of the great modern hymns of the faith now. Did you know that there is only one place where... It is said that Christ is to be held fast. And that is by Judas in Matthew 27. 
Judas says to the officers, arrest him and hold him fast. And yet it's Jesus in the garden holding you fast. It's Jesus in the garden making sure your faith doesn't fail. It's Jesus being bound to bring you to glory. It's Jesus willing to suffer in your place and my place so that he can say, of those you've given me, of those the Father's given me, I've lost none. See, what Jesus does in the garden as the king is an outworking of what he said in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will never cast out. I will raise him up on the last day. And in John 10, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a word you need for your soul if you're a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, what a word you need for your soul. You know, I was speaking with one of our elders this morning about how much sin there is in the world, how much sin there is in our hearts, the darkness of depravity. And he, and he said this morning, and I've thought this many times, you know, I don't know how people that don't have Christ make it through life. Because just the guilt of your own sin is enough to drown you in the depths of despair. And yet here's Jesus conquering. Here's Jesus willingly obeying. Here's Jesus acting in divine authority for your salvation and mine to keep us, protect us, to bring us to be with him. And then what is driving this? Thirdly, it's the sacrificial compassion of the son. What, why would Jesus do this? Remember, um, John said earlier, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What is enabling Jesus to subject himself to this? What is causing Jesus to exhibit that divine authority and to say he's not going to lose any that the Father gave him? It's the love and the compassion that he has for his people. I was reading letters this week by one of my favorite theologians from church history, and, and he quoted that verse um, out of the Proverbs, a friend loves at all times, a friend loves at all times. And he said something along the lines of, you know, you, you really know friendship and the love of a friend when there is a dark trial or a valley and that friend is there. Well, you really know the love of Christ when you consider it against the background of your depravity, your sin, your inability to help yourself, your inability to change yourself. Um, and yet here's Christ in all of that love, in all of that mercy, in all of that compassion. J.C. Ryle said it was the joy set before him which made him endure the cross and despise the shame and yield himself up. Let this thought abide in our hearts and refresh our souls. We have a Savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. Oh, don't miss that this morning. We have a Savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. Isn't that glorious? We have a Savior who loves us far more than you'll ever know, far more than I'll ever know. And we have a Savior that was driven forward to the cross out of compassion and love for those that the Father gave him to bring them to be with him where he is. 
You know, there's so much more I could say this morning. I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. As Jesus is in the garden as the last Adam, he is there in submission to his Father. What a Savior that he would submit fully, entirely, down to drinking the last drop of the wrath of God out of that cup that we should have drank, that he is submitting himself voluntarily, laying down his life. What a Savior we have. And then secondly, that he is exhibiting that he has all divine authority, that this is no just mere man. This is God over all. This is the word made flesh. This is the brightness of the Father's glory. This is the one who can speak a word and can knock hundreds of soldiers back with just a word about his being. What confidence we ought to have when we go to him. What confidence we can have. And our thoughts of Christ are far too small. This is the only Jesus there is. Um, he has all divine authority. He is the king over all. This is, this is your king if you're a Christian. He is greater than all the kings of the earth. He has more authority and more power than any man that's ever lived because he is God in the flesh. And then I want to leave you with the thought that Jesus is exhibiting in that garden as the last Adam, the sacrificial compassion and love that he came to give himself for you on account of. Um, you know, I sometimes, well, not just sometimes, I always kind of squirm when I read secular memes. But um, a lot of times there's these little empty sayings like, you just got to love yourself, you just got to forgive yourself. Listen, that's not going to do much of anything for you. What you need to do is you need to know the greatness of the love of Christ for you. You need to know the greatness of the love of Christ for you. Though we are entirely undeserving, he has loved us to the full and he has loved us to the end. When this John writes the book of Revelation, he opens it by saying, to him who loves us, and washed us from our sins with his own blood. That's how John thought of Jesus, to him who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I'm going to leave you with the words of that hymn as we close. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. It's empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up. Now blessings drop for me. If you are bored by this, I'm sorry. There is nothing greater than this. There's something horribly wrong. This is it. This is where people should be saying, hold it there. God wants you to fix your eyes on Christ in the garden. To see him arrested so that you might be set free. To see him drinking the cup so that you might just have blessings in him, to know his love, to see his willing obedience and authority. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for breathing out this account. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you truly and really have given yourself for us. We thank you for what you suffered in the garden 
We thank you for the humiliation and the hurt that you experienced at the hand of Judas for our salvation. We thank you for your willing obedience, for your divine authority, and for your unfailing compassion and love. We do pray that you would make us to see with the eyes of faith these things in greater measure. We pray, our God, that you would draw us to the Lord Jesus on account of these things, that we would not leave this place just thinking these things are nice or good to hear about, but that you would give us grace to, to seek him, to come to you, and to trust in you. And so, Lord, would you be at work in us through these truths? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.